celebrity Let your weary mind be free And someone kind of famous who you can't see It's time for sleeping with celebrity Hello sleepyheads and welcome to Sleeping with Celebrities. I'm John Moe. I'm glad you're here. As you know, on this audio program, we invite our guests to step out of the limelight and step into the nightlight. On this program, for one bedtime anyway, I don't want them to bring their A game, but rather their Z game. It's a podcast where you can sleep, you can simply relax, you can take a break from stress and intensity. Just ahead, we'll be sleeping with Nagin Farsad. She's going to talk with me about stuff to do in Paris. But before all that, I invite you to settle in and get comfortable while I tell you about another show on the Maximum Fun Network. Sawbones, a marital tour of misguided medicine, is your guide to all the weird, bad, hilarious, terrifying ways we've tried to fix the human body over the millennia. Plus, they investigate the latest wellness fads to see which ones will actually injure you and sap all of your money. This podcast is hosted by a real-life married couple, Dr. Sidney McElroy, a passionate, empathetic physician who provides medical history in a clear, concise style that makes even the most complex medical concepts accessible to anyone, and Justin McElroy, whose job is to point out when a word Sidney says sounds vaguely like fart. Medicine is at the forefront of so many of our minds these days. Shouldn't it be at the forefront of your ears, too? Well, that didn't make any sense. But Sawbones will, every Tuesday on Maximum Fun, or wherever podcasts are. And now, for our guest. Nagin Farsad is a writer, director, author, and comedian. Nagin got her first big break in the way most comedians do as a policy advisor for the city of New York, and from there was named one of the top ten feminist comedians by Paste magazine. Then she wrote and directed the film The Muslims Are Coming, sued the city of New York and won, and now hosts the funny political podcast Fake the Nation. I'm pretty sure that's everything. Nagin, Welcome to Sleeping with Celebrities. Hello, John. Did I overlook any of your professional accomplishments, or did I nail them all? Did you say, wait, wait, don't tell me? You're a frequent panelist on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Well, I, w I only mention that because it does happen to be the thing that people tend to know most about me. <laughs> Yes. It's not not it's not my choice. That's what it's it's just the how it shakes out. Peter Sagel joined us on a very early version of Sleeping with Celebrities where he talked for an hour about his choice of socks. 
I'm deeply unsurprised that he was able to do that for a full hour. The man has a breadth of knowledge about things that are incredibly useless, and I say that with love. He's highly educated, but has not learned to talk slowly, but he (laughs) could talk quite a bit about socks. You are also, I should point out, the author of the book, How to Make White People Laugh. That's right. All right. It's a memoir. Memoir meets social justice comedy manifesto, which is obviously a, a subgenre we're all familiar with. Sure. You're part of that group. Yeah. Yeah. I like to start off these bedtime conversations with a question or two about sleep. What's the best night of sleep you've ever had? Oh, my God. I'm so glad you asked this question because I have a night of sleep that was so epic I still think about it. I'm still chasing it. It's it's like a the high I can't recreate. And it happened because I was in London doing a gig, a stand-up comedy situation, and then I left London on a you know, an uncomfortable flight mm-hmm. to all the way to Los Angeles. I live in New York City, so this was just like 11 hours or whatever, and wow. it was ridiculous. I was so tired. I get to Los Angeles I check and I'm there for another gig and I check into the hotel and I, I, I lay down at like 2 p.m. and I didn't wake up until the next day at 11 a.m. I didn't wow. I didn't pee in the middle. I somehow held it all in there. I didn't wake up at any point. I just slept solidly for almost 21 hours or something like that. A 21-hour sleep. What did it yeah. feel like when you woke up from that? It felt great. I was also a little shocked and confused because I was just like, what do you mean it's 11 a.m. world? And I also like immediately, I was staying at the Omni Hotel in downtown Los Angeles. Mm. And, and I, for some reason, didn't attribute it to the extreme time zone change. I somehow was just like, no, 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 this is because... This is because of the mattress, and I need to find out what mattress this is. <laughs> and so I called down. Like, the first thing I did, I croaked uh, a question to the front desk, like, what are these mattresses? And they actually told us that that people ask about those mattresses. And I wish I could tell you the name of the mattress. But unlike your more prepared guests, I do not know the name of that mattress. So you didn't go on to purchase a mattress like this of your own? No, I was a lot. I was all talk, you know, a lot of bluster, uh, no follow through. Do you sleep in the same position every night? I sleep in multiple positions every. I, I spent many years sleeping vampire style on my back, arms crossed, in a coffin, in a coffin, <laughs> um, in a coffin during the day. I see. But I, I, I slept like that for very many years, and then. I actually had, I used to be like a tremendous sleeper. Like I used to be just really, really good at sleeping. Um, And I'm not trying to, out here trying to brag. I'm just saying like that was one of my er early skills um, as a person. Um, And then since having a child, uh, that's, I have lost my resounding abilities to have, to have sleep like that. So now I do a lot of sleeping, sleeping on one side, sleeping on the other side, sleeping on my back a little, you know, there's some tossing, there's some turning. I'm not proud of it. How old is your child? She's four. Okay. Um, and, and to be honest, like for zero to three, she slept tremendously well. Mm. 
So that wasn't my, those weren't my problem years. Those are typically, I think, problem years Yes. for most parents. Uh, but in my case, um, the problem year started when she turned three. She started waking up very early. Mm. Uh, and she's uh, what's popularly described as a morning person. So I she'll see. just wake up ready to take on the world. But it's like 6 a.m., you know, and it's cruel and it's unusual. Yeah. You find yourself on the floor at 6.15 in the morning playing with toys, thinking, what in God's name is happening in the world? You're right. Exactly. Um, like This is its own uh, punishment. Um, what what have I done? And what have I done to deserve magnetiles at 6.15? It's pretty early for magnetiles. <laughs> so you've talked a little bit about being in London, but we're going to be traveling to Paris today, aren't we? Mm-hmm. How, how um, often and for how long have you been to Paris, France? So I have a very long history with Paris, France, starting with my aunt, who in her family, they were refugees in France. They were in a refugee camp outside of Paris for several months. And then me and my parents went there when I was 11 years old to help them like resettle somewhere outside of the refugee camp. And so that first week we were in Paris helping them get sorted out. And it wasn't, it's funny because, yeah, so it was like not a glamorous part of Paris, but had like, we we rented an apartment that was in, you know, a seedier part of town, but it just had a beautiful view of the Eiffel Tower. So I was like 11 years old, Mm. flung open the windows of this Parisian apartment and just stared at the Eiffel Tower for hours, thinking it was just the most majestic, most incredible thing I'd ever seen in my life. And and we we stayed in, in France for a few weeks helping my aunt, and then we would go back to France to see my aunt and to like, you know, see how they were doing. And, you know, they had to kind of, they became citizens in France and then ended up actually immigrating to the United States many years later because it takes about, it, it took them about, I think, eight years to get a an interview to be able to get a green card to come to the United States, which is, I think, something I like to like mention to people how long it took because we have this thought that like immigrants just waltz into this country. Um, and they might do some waltzing, but it is an eight-year-long waltz oftentimes. And there's a lot of rejection along the way. Not everyone gets to even do it. So um, so yeah, so my, my, my aunt lived in, in France all that time. And uh, we would go, and again, she was living in like ultimately settled in the banlieue of Paris, which are like the suburbs. Again, these are like not the beautiful parts of Paris that you see in the movies, but even those parts of Paris, they were the outskirts. I just thought they were so cool, even though they had like higher rates of violence and just like not where any tourist would ever go. I just thought they were the coolest places. And I just always found something just really cool about the French that I wanted to speak French. I learned French. I started to learn French in high school and continued in in college. And then college, I went and did a semester. I did a summer. And then after college, I ended up getting uh, moving to Paris and, and getting a job teaching English and waiting tables. And then I, I get I went back. I got another work visa when I was in grad school and did another. I don't remember uh, four to six months. So all told, I've spent probably like two years in Paris mm. with these like 
in these like three to six month chunks um, where, where, where I could get work visas and stuff. Do you still get filled with wonder when you see the Eiffel Tower or is it just a big dumb piece of metal now? No, I do. That's what's that's what's remarkable is I. So my husband, who was an actor, he had to shoot. Well, he had to shoot Emily in Paris last last summer, and so we went back to Paris, and it was like the summer where like all of everyone's travel was starting back up from COVID. And I see the, and I hadn't seen the Eiffel Tower in like, you know, I don't remember, it must have been four or five years. And I see it and I had the same, I mean, every time I see it, I just feel like an 11 year old girl who's seeing something incredible for the first time. It's really, I don't know, I'm, I guess I'm just really basic. I'm a basic bitch who loves a really world renowned, super popular, universally known hunk of metal. Well, the world has gotten together and decided that the Eiffel Tower, as hunks of metal go, is a pretty neat hunk of metal. So I think you're on on some safe footing there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, Thanks for resurrecting my sense of self. (laughs) So let's imagine that I'm going to Paris for the first time, which if I went to Paris, it would be for the first time. Mm. Oh, I, you've never been. I've never been to Paris. Oh, I've God. been to lots of Europe, but never never to Paris, never to France. Wild. L- let's say I have a few days to spend there. Yeah. What would you recommend I do B- beyond going to the Louvre yeah. Museum? So um, I actually think you could spend an incredible amount of time in Paris wandering the streets and not walking into any building at all whatsoever or into any museum. I mean, obviously, do go to the museums. They're great. But um, there's so many walking routes uh, or routes Mm, that I find. Yes, both. Um, Or les routes, Mm. as the French would say, that I find just phenomenal. I lived for some time in the 10th arrondissement, just off of the Place de la République. Republic place. Republic place. <laughs> Had some historical significance to the Republic. Mm-hmm. And I, I would frequently just walk from my apartment through the Marais, which is like a kind of fashion-y, also gay kind of district mm-hmm. um, neighborhood. It's really cool. It's also like quite expensive. Uh, and it's just just beautiful, and I would have like a a cafe. That's the other thing you can. The thing with Paris is, I'm sure you can spend a lot of money, but because my experience there from a very young age was by having no money at all, mm-hmm. and then going there to work in like minimum wage jobs, I never really had money mm-hmm. hanging out in Paris. I was really very much just like um, trying to stretch a dollar. And uh, or a euro, and I would just go and have a cafe at like that's that's French for coffee. Coffee, yes. <laughs> and I would have a, a cafe and cafe, s'il vous plaît. I would say at cafes in Le Marais, this this district, and uh, and you, even and, P, and when you're sitting there, if you're wearing a cute outfit, and you know, and you cross your legs just so, and you have an air about you like you belong. Everyone will think that you're some sort of rich Parisian lady mm. having a great time. So they're part of part of the joy of being there is acting like you're supposed to be there. 
And so that's something that I would do is I would walk there. And then after you get out of the Marais, you land on the Hotel de Ville, Hotel de Ville, okay. which is the, the city hall of Paris. Okay. And it's just got this like plaza in the front and it's just this grand building in the style of, um, you know what? I don't know what they call that style. Something it's a Victorian French. something, yeah, you know, Rococo, I don't know. But it is, but there's flying buttresses, you know what I mean? If you're into a flying buttress, you'll see some of that. There's columns and gr- grandiosity of all sorts mm. on this building. Lots of pigeons convening. And it is across the street from the Notre Dame. The cathedral. And the cathedral. So again, this is all one walking route. You know, you are just walking from one incredible neighborhood to the next. And then along the way, you're seeing ridiculously beautiful monuments built in whatever the 17th century, 18th century. And if you really think about how big these things are, I mean, if you think about like a dumb house that was built in your neighborhood and it took a year or whatever. Can you imagine how long it took to build these things? Now, if I was some sort of a historian, I could give you actual figures. But I think what's great about me is that I'm not a historian. That is what's great about it. That's what everybody says. It's probably going on my tombstone, Nagina Farsad, wife, mother, not a historian. Right. But but if you think, but you really look at these things, they're so big and they're so elaborate and there's so much detail i mean if you've ever like had to like paint a room and then be like oh no it would be nice if we had some molding on the side of this wall oh forget it that's too much you know what the french did they always went for the molding they didn't just do molding they did grand molding so many little curly cue details on every aspect of these buildings it's ridiculous so the notre dame is one of the is is another such building you may have uh, you may recall there was a little fire there in 2019 there was a fire that's right and it was devastating but they managed to preserve large parts of the facade so I, I happened to see it after the fire, and they're still just working on it. And they're so, the French are not about efficiency. Mm. So they're not going to be fast about this, but they will be detail-oriented, because they're snobs about detail. Right. I see here that it, the groundbreaking for the Notre Dame Cathedral was in 1163, and it shows it as completed in 1345. You do the math. Literally do the math. What is that? Two, like 200 years? That's about 187 years, I believe. That's insane. How many people had to have follow through on that project? Because I think oftentimes someone will start a project and the next person will come along and be like, no, that's dumb. We're not doing that. Right. I've seen improv exercises. I know how that works. <laughs> exactly. So this had to be, I'm going to say thousands of people involved, all agreeing to some original vision from a guy in a previous century. You're starting your part of this task on something that was begun generations before, knowing that you'll die 
long before it's completed. It's like if we were building the Empire State Building in New York City, but they started that during the colonial era. No one would stick with that. No, we'd, we'd put cool things on it. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. We'd put a bunch of touch screens. Yeah. You know, by now. <laughs> Solar panels and laser light shows. And just like it could do holograms and... Fog machines. All, exactly. Um, and so the final product is really is really quite stunning. And when you think about the 187 years it took to build it, it's a testament to everyone agreeing on something. Management book should be written on that. Yes. So we've walked Paris. We're not even going into these buildings necessarily. Well, we can't go into Notre Dame because it's closed for renovation. Yeah. Which is probably and I, you can't really go into Hotel de Ville. Yeah, you yeah. can't really go there either. Mm. You, we've sat at a cafe. We had a coffee outside. You got to sit outside. They'll sit outside in the middle of winter. They don't care. You know what I mean? They don't give a fuck. How cold does it get in the winter? I mean, it doesn't get like New York. It'll get like in the 40s or something. It's oh. unpleasant, but oh. you can, you'll still sit outside and uh, you'll wear some kind of really beautiful coat. Mm. And again, it's a, just a lot about, there's a lot of air, putting on airs, I think. <laughs> right. That's, that's so far what you're describing of Paris <laughs> is not surprising <laughs> to me at all based on... Okay based on what limited knowledge I have. We've gone for a walk <laughs> mm-hmm. to, we've seen the Eiffel Tower through yeah, a window uh-huh. and felt poignant. Yeah. Okay. We, we've, we've walked, uh, we've seen Notre Dame and I've had an I opportunity to, to appear to be a, a rich lady in a cafe. <laughs> yeah. But I did start out the conversation by reminding everyone that I am extraordinarily basic. Now, I am going to tell you about a part of Paris that people don't generally go to. No, we'll, we'll just stop that route there for a moment. Okay. While I backtracked, we're going to go back to Place de la République where this walk started because there's something I forgot to tell you. Oh. Which is that when you are in Place de la République, you're very close. You're two, about two blocks away from the Canal Saint-Martin. So what you want to do is go up and walk up Rue de la Roquette, Rue de la Roquette, past a club called Favela Chic, for the record, and and you, you land on the Canal Saint-Martin. Now, in the Canal Saint-Martin, it's a little canal, and it goes through kind of like a the northeastern sector of the city, and it's really gorgeous and it is featured prominently in the movie Amélie. Now, I don't oh. know if you're familiar with the 2001 <clears throat> masterpiece Amélie. Yes. Uh, the original French title of that was The Fabuleux Le, Le Destin Fabuleux de, d'Amélie Poulain. That was the original title. They shortened it for Americans to just Amélie. Thank you, French. <laughs> I actually saw that movie in theaters in Paris, and it was just, it's like one of my top three favorite films of all time. It's sort of a magical realism kind of dreamscape Paris, correct? Exactly, exactly. And if you were, you know, ever a little girl that fell in love with Paris and then grew up, this movie is like has you written all over it uh, mm. because it shows you that kind of like magical part of Paris 
characters that 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 you really love. And in the movie, she skips rocks on the Canal Saint Martin as a favorite pastime. Um, so obviously, naturally, and it goes without saying, I did the same. Of course, you did. And so should you. There's beautiful little pedestrian bridges throughout the canal that you can stand on and just kind of look upon the canal. There's um, there's like little areas that um, that have some landscaping and benches and you can sit and watch. There's like some playgroundish type areas for kids. It's just a really lovely, a lovely canal that runs through the city. And then right there at the corner of the canal and Rue de la Roquette, you can buy a beer, cross the street with your glass of beer, go sit right by the canal, sip on that beer, and then return the glass. Like, which I think for an American, this is crazy. Like you would never allow a glass from a restaurant to be so far away from the restaurant. (laughs) Maybe in New Orleans or Las Vegas, but not most places. Not in most places. And so the so this was just one of those cool things that you get a beer, you cross, you go, you sip your beer, you skip some rocks, you have a chat. I spent a wonderful summer in the mid-2000s meeting gentlemen and uh, <laughs> engaging in some, we'll call them shenanigans. Ah, some tomfoolery. Yes, 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 yes. yes. And, uh, you know, and I would, we would hang out on that canal and, and get a little tipsy and have a good time. Mm. So the, I feel like the canal is something that doesn't end up in a lot of the tour books. It's like, it's for locals. So I would definitely go to the canal. That's something that most people don't go to. Also in the same vein, there's a park called Bois de Boulogne. Boulogne and that's, Street. Um, <laughs> it's funny because Bois, I think, means wood. Uh, oh, so, Bologna wood. Uh, Bologna wood. So I would go to Bois de Boulogne because this is also a park that's not, it, it's not where, that, that is my dog, and he wants you to sleep. And that's just all he's trying to tell us. Right. Um, go to sleep, so, growl. Go, it's the go to sleep growl. It's the classic, classic right. Pashmak go to sleep growl. That's sure. his name. So Bois de Boulogne is one of these parks where the Parisians go in the summer, and it's and it's so delightful, and you and you just won't see you won't see very many tourists there, and that's another kind of like spot. <laughs> There's dog is doing a lot of sneezing and stuff. So sorry. It's all right. It's just it's like one of those one of those parks you could sit. You can get a nice view of the Sacré Cœur across town, which is another beautiful church that is in the tour books. And you can just, you know, you, you, you grab a blanket, you sit on your blanket with your French lover, mm-hmm. you know, and you whisper sweet nothings. It's also a place where you can, if you wanted to buy weed, only to find out that the weed is actually oregano. Oh. That's where you do that. If you like to canoodle with a lover or get hustled with fake weed, this is the place. Yeah, absolutely. Write that down. Is this where the Parisians go, but the tourists don't know about it, so there doesn't have as many tourists? Yeah, no, definitely. There's not as many tourists in Bois de Boulogne. No, it's like a Parisian hangout. Is Paris generally walkable, or do we need to be riding Le Metro to get to some of these places? (laughs) 
And now, friends, for information on another Maximum Fun podcast. We Got This with Mark and Hal is a weekly podcast where the hosts settle hotly debated topics, things that might even keep you awake, like whether ketchup should be on a hot dog, Star Wars or Star Trek, and the best as-seen-on-TV product. Mark and Hal provide objective answers to subjective questions posed by you, the listener. It's two longtime friends who love diving into the least controversial but most important arguments and have you nodding in agreement or shaking your head in disbelief. They're often joined by wonderful guests like Nathan Fillion, Paget Brewster, Paul F. Tompkins, the McElroy family, John Hodgman, and many more. That's We Got This with Mark and Hal on the Maximum Fun Network or wherever you get your podcasts. Is Paris generally walkable or do we need to be riding Le Metro to get to some of these places? Paris is the most walkable city I've ever lived in or been to. You can, like, the walk from République to through the Marais to Hôtel de Ville to Notre Dame, which is right on the Seine, all of that. I mean, you can do that in like 15 minutes mm. or 20 minutes or something. And the walk um, from Republique to Bois de Boulogne, you could do that in another 15, 20 minutes. Everything feels like it's kind of 15 to 20 minutes of a walk. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, or you can do like a nice, like you can walk from Notre Dame to Eiffel Tower, I'm going to say in like 35 minutes along the Seine. The other nice thing about Paris is that there's a river that cuts through it that's kind of like a shortcut in many ways that can get you to different points quite speedily. How does it do that? Do you need to get in a boat, you mean, or just walk along the riverbank? You know, like in New York City, everything is, like in Manhattan, but in general, it's it's a grid. Right. So to get places, you're just doing a lot of like going up and to the side and down and to the side or whatever, <laughs> right? There's not very many diagonal lines that are shortcuts, right. you know? There's Broadway, in, and that's about it. And that's about it. But in Paris, you got a ton of diagonal lines, including this huge one, which is the river Mm. with its many, many crossing points. You don't even need to really get an Uber or anything. You you can just get in. You could just walk everything. How important is it on a visit to Paris to get right up to underneath the Eiffel Tower versus are you fine just looking at it when you are walking other places. Slash third option, do you need to go up the Eiffel Tower? Now, my position is that everyone should experience what it feels like to stand right under it. Because that's cool. Yes. Uh, It's just the feat of engineering. Again, that dude Eiffel had this crazy idea to put all these pieces of metal together It was not simple. It took a long time. He had a bunch of drama in his life throughout it. And um, I think you should see what that looks like. Because 
they didn't have AutoCAD or whatever. You know what I mean? Right. Drafting software. Drafting software. That's right. Um, I just mentioned AutoCAD um, for the for the AutoCAD heads who listen to the show, sure. which I'm sure are numerous. People thinking about AutoCAD as they drift off to sleep. Yeah, which I think is actually a really great yeah. Which yeah. you should. That's that will put you to it sleep if you poetic, do think yeah. about it a lot. But um, the uh, there's you can really see kind of like what went into it when you stand underneath it, mm. and how crazy it is that someone in the 1800s like figured that shit out. So it's I a, would do I would do that. But you don't need to go up it. No, you can stand underneath it and have the experience. Stand underneath it and have the experience. And then the other thing that I think you should do is just transport back to when you were in your early 20s, not even late 20s, and sit in the field behind the Eiffel Tower wherein you will find really cheesy dudes strumming on their guitars trying to pick up ladies. Oh, guitar guys. Paris has guitar guitar guys. Oh, Paris has so many guitar guys. And I just, I will say, you know, the the main thing they have going for them is that they're French guitar yes. guys but they are very much still essentially you know Ken in the Barbie movie making you listen to a song in terms in terms of people that you meet in Paris beyond the guitar guys yeah are they rude or is this just something that Americans assume and stereotype them to be yeah I, I find them generally not to be rude at all they're pretty direct Mm -hmm. you know they don't have time to like sugarcoat everything and you know and they don't like they don't do very much hyperbole like oh my god it's so amazing to meet you uh like the way we do like they don't really do that they're not schmoozers no they're they're not and they're not trying to be so like chaleureux or warm they're not like like you know, I think Americans, and this is such a great quality for America. Like, I'm glad that we are known this way. But we walk into a situation where we're like, oh, my God, hi, what do you do? What's your name? Tell me everything about yourself. That's not the French way. Mm. But I, it's not because they're rude. It's just like they like let things play out a little like more in a more chill fashion. Mm. Also, I found because I spoke French and not to brag, but it's my fourth language. That is to brag, <laughs> I think. <laughs> to specifically brag, it yes. is my fourth language. Thank you. <laughs> so it is a so and and I here's another brag. I sound pretty good when I speak. Okay. <laughs> you do. What are the other What are the other two languages besides French um, and English? So, I mean, and I don't even, it's funny because it's my fourth language, but I don't even think languages two and three should really count because I just grew up speaking them. I'm trilingual with Farsi and Azadi, which is a dialect of Turkish because of this region that my parents are from in Iran. Everyone speaks Farsi and Turkish. Everyone's bilingual. Mm. So I grew up just speaking those two languages at home. So you have four languages, but you've only made one effort. Yes, exactly. Okay. That's yeah. So I feel so the brag is a little. Again, it's kind of not to brag. Yeah, yeah. It just yeah. Worked I out didn't that have way. to try. Yeah, I didn't have to try on languages one through three. I've heard about 
the French and the Parisians that they may be a little standoffish at first, but if you cross a certain line and become actual friends with them, then they are loyal for life, fierce, loving, dedicated friends. Oh my God. I would I find that to be absolutely true. There's people that I met, you know, like fifteen years ago that I still keep in touch with. Um, here's something really weird. I dated this it's also like guys I've dated in France that I've kept in touch with. I dated this guy who had a vague interest in like writing or something, but we were young and everyone was an idiot. But then a few, you know, years later, he emails me and uh, and is like, I'd like to send you the manuscript for my novel. Mm. I'd like to hear your thoughts on it, which was weird. And he sends me this novel that I read in French, which felt like a feat on, unto itself. And the premise of the, the novel was that this guy like wants to tell this woman how he feels about her um, and it gets drunk one night and writes her an email but accidentally sends the email to everybody oh. on his in his address book which feels like a very 2008 kind of premise for a st- for a story <laughs> you're not seeing very many of those in 2023 yeah but it, but it but it was funny you know what i mean and 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 uh, yeah, so this, I just thought it was so interesting that he still thought of me as like someone that he would want my my notes or something. Yeah, yeah. You, and um, the intimacy is maintained. Yeah, in some weird in some weird way. Mm. I also think so. Just in terms of like the way they date is that they don't date. It's like you meet someone and then you make out with them and then you're just sort of together. And then you're together real intensely for like a few weeks until one of you, and, and they'll say, they'll, they'll drop an I love you, I mean, so early. Mm. I mean, the first time I I'll said I love you. I'll sing out I mean, there's jetems dropping like flies in Paris. It's out of control. And I, I was always like, dude, we're just dating. And they'd be like, what do you mean? You know what I mean? And they never understood my American concept of dating, which was like, I'm just casually seeing you, but I will also casually see some other dudes at the same time. So you don't need to jetem the situation. <laughs> it seems like the, the Paris you're describing, even the makey-outy parts, mm-hmm. you've given us the full rundown of being outside. It's Paris... It's outdoor Paris that you've described. We would have to do another entire episode of, of indoor, indoor Paris. Paris. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, and it's, and it's interesting because it's not like the weather in Paris is that fantastic, but I do, I do think that if you live there, like the whole point of living there is to just observe it from the, on the outside most of the time. <laughs> you mm. know what I mean? Um, I will tell you about one indoor Paris that I always go to. There's a building called La Samaritaine, and it's like on the Seine. It's right by Pont Neuf, which is Nine Bridge, and um, right. and so or like no, or Neuf like New Bridge, um, and uh, there's a 
there's a, a, a building there called Samaritan, and the Samaritan used to be like a sort of, oh, I don't know, just sort of like a French Kmart or something like that. Mm-hmm. It used to be just like a store, and then there, it had a, it had like a rooftop, um, not a rooftop, but just like a penthouse, whatever level, top level restaurant, and. Everyone, you know, I would always go with friends and have like a coffee there because it had such an incredible view. Again, the fr- the Paris I'm describing is like maybe you're sitting inside, but you're still looking outside. Uh-huh. So we we uh, we would have you know coffees there. Now that place has been completely renovated, and it is like some hotel called like Chevalier Blanc or something like that. I don't know. Mm. Um, and now you can go have like a hot, more uh, more of a higher end coffee there or something um, in the same, with the same view. Uh, but it, you know, it lacks the charm of the French Kmart, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that, I, <laughs> that, that all tourists long for. Well, and that was, again, it was one of those places that wasn't really for tourists. It was just for Parisians who were like, I want a cheap coffee with a view. Right. You know, where do I do that? <laughs> right, right. Well, uh, Nagin, I wonder if before we go here, you can you can indulge our listeners in kind of a coup de grace for this interview by walking us through a, a little meditation, a little minute or so French meditation to get our listeners to sleep. <clears throat> Okay, so here's my um, my little French meditation. It's it's a it's a it's a visual and um, breathing extravaganza. <clears throat> so I want you to picture yourself on the Pont des Artistes in Paris. It's a bridge over the Seine. En français, s'il vous plaît. Oh, en français, vous voulez? Okay, je je dois faire ça en français. Alors. Alors, on est sur le pont des artistes à Paris. Il y a beaucoup de, mais j'ai pas le mot, lacs. Et on est, on met, on met ces lacs euh, sur le pont pour, euh, comme un souvenir de, d'un amour, d'un, d'un, de, de quelque chose que vous avez, euh, euh, fait dans votre voyage à Paris et euh, vous l'aimez et vous vous souhaitez euh, vous souhaitez quelque chose dans votre cœur et vous vous dites euh, moi je suis à Paris dans le le sens du calme de Paris et euh, je je, 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 je respire avec euh, un beau calme et, euh, et je me souhaite un, un beau rêve ce soir et, je, et maintenant je vous souhaite un beau rêve ce soir et euh, vous, allez, vous allez dormir euh, super bien oh, bien <laughs> what would just be good night in French. Bonne nuit. Bonne nuit. Nagin Fausad, merci beaucoup. <laughs> Et bonne nuit. Merci, Jean. Bonne nuit. Well, sleepyheads, I hope you enjoyed learning about Paris as much as I did. 
One thing I like to do at the end of my day is make a mental catalog of things that I experienced and or learned that day. So if you don't mind, I'm going to compose a list of takeaways from my conversation with Nagin Farsad right now while it's fresh in my mind. One, it's possible to live in a seedy part of Paris and still have a view of the Eiffel Tower. Two, café is French for coffee, as in un café s'il vous plaît, meaning one coffee, please. Three, Nagin is fluent in English, French, Farsi, and another language I wasn't even aware of. Four, you can have a wonderful time in Paris just walking around outdoors, never setting one foot inside. Five, if you visit Paris for the first time, you should probably spend at least some of your time strolling through at least one museum or other architectural wonder, even though it's nice outside. Which brings me to my last takeaway. Six, one thing to know about the French, they always went for the molding. Okay, I'm going to turn in myself. Thank you for sleeping with me and my guest, Nagin Farsad. You can follow Sleeping With Celebrities on Twitter at the handle sleepwithcelebs. On Instagram, the handle is at sleepwcelebs. Our email is sleepwithcelebs at maximumfun.org. Music is provided by the Winterbowers. The show was senior produced and edited by Laura Swisher. Swish. This is a production of Maximum Fun and Papuchik. I'm John Moe. Night night. Maximum Fun, a worker owned network of artist owned shows, supported directly by you.